Welcome back to MSP Startup Stories, the number one podcast about how MSPs started their business. I'm your host, Jimmy Hatzel, and this guest needs no introduction. However, I'll give you a peek into why I think everyone needs to hear this conversation. After having a low-level IT job in high school, he came to the realization that the implementation of the desktop computer into the workspace become the equalizer for all things IT. At the time, nobody was well-versed in this new technology. His lack of experience was not a factor anymore and allowed him to pursue what turned into an MSP for 21 years and counting. So Peter, I want to start at the beginning. Before MSP world, before, you know, you probably didn't even call it an MSP back then, but before you started Greystone, what were you doing? What was life like then? Yeah, so skipping class. It's funny, if you talk to a lot of MSP owners, seems to be this era, maybe between 18 and 23 years ago, where a lot of MSPs started. And that's where Greystone started too. We're 21 years old. I was 20. I think it was the week after my 20th birthday. Um, you can do the math in terms of how old I am. And I dropped out of college. I got an IT job actually in high school uh, before I graduated. And it was really interesting. And when I went to college, it was not interesting. And so I looked at it and said, well, I just want to do more of this. And it was everything from fixing computers to, you know, building websites, learning HTML. It was not very well focused. It's funny there, as I look back, there was this time and this inflection point, you know, in in business where all of a sudden everyone had a desktop computer on their desk uh, for the first time. And so you didn't need a lot of professional experience. Because no one had significant experience with desktop computers being everywhere. It was kind of an equalizer for people who had, you know, been in various career paths for years and decades, you know, and someone like me, you know, who was curious um, and very inexperienced, but pretty relentless, you know, around it. And so I, I often say you know, people love to tell the story of college dropout, you know, done good, you know, and all of that and, and talk it up as, you know, being such a young visionary and all that. And it was not that at all. I quit school, had to tell my college professor father that I was dropping out um, and had to have a good story about why. And the story was, hey, I've been doing this business stuff, you know, basically fixing computers, building websites, you know, things like that. So that's what I'm going to do. Never really thought that's what I was going to do. It was just something that I I had confidence in, I had developed some skills in, and I could do. And so that was my foray into that. Someone at the company that I worked for in, in high school, actually, who was who became a partner in that company I'd stayed in touch with and talked to him. And we said, yeah, let's see what we want to do with this, you know, and get a couple of clients, you know, and make some money while we figure out what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. And 21 years later, I'm still doing it. It's vastly different than it was then. And it's vastly different than I expected. So like what point there was it, you know, you're getting paid a couple bucks to help somebody set up their computer or maybe, you know, helping an office building get set up to, oh, this could be a real thing. And this is like real income that's happening. There were a few progressions along the way. I think for the first few years, my partner had a corporate job. Um, You know, he did very well, you know, in a software startup, you know, in terms of just understanding how to run a team, how to run an organization. I got to glean, you know, some experience uh, from that, but he didn't work day to day in Greystone at that time. So it was really just me and the fact that I needed to make about 1200 bucks a month to pay my rent and buy some beer and, you know, some Taco Bell occasionally. And I could work a hundred hours a week because I didn't really have any other commitments. 
it was one of those things like raising kids or, or you know, something like that, where you look back and things have changed massively, but day to day, you never saw, you know, a really significant monumental change. But I do remember, you know, one day when I realized I was like, oh, wait, I'm making more money than I spend uh, for the first time. And it was probably three years in. And that's the time at which I looked at it and said, all right, well, I'm also working too much. So I got to hire somebody. And if I want to hire somebody and I want to make also make money, I have to be working almost twice as much as I should be to get enough business and then somehow elegantly pass that off to someone that I employ and hope that they're going to do uh, well with that as well. So the third time we tried to hire, it was finally successful. The first two times were great learning experiences about what not to do and very painful at the time because I had more work than I could handle. And so it was that thing probably three years in another year, you know, of learning those lessons and really started to earn a consistent living. Now, if you ask me how, you know, when it really felt like I was, you know, like stability and all that, it was much later. Um, it was still one of those things where it felt like it could go away at the drop of a hat. It felt like one mistake or one lost client. Yeah, I'm going to have to let staff go. I'm going to not, not be able to pay my bills. And that was probably a good decade. And Part of it is that the managed service model, you know, as we started in 01, the managed service model didn't really take hold. We were pretty early in that process, maybe 05, took hold for us. I think our big transition year was like 07, but it really took hold in like 2009, 2010. So we didn't have a lot of recurring revenue, you know, for the first you know six or seven years of the business. Um, so it really was how much I want to work and how much people want to work with me. And frustrating and, and unstable as that simple equation felt, it probably also bred the kind of work ethic and uh, client centricity that has helped carry Greystone from there. Yeah. So it sounded like, you know, you, you went into this thing, sort of no backup plan. It's not like you had a, you know, couple million dollar loan to make some mistakes and uh, hire some people along the way. <laughs> like, was there any like you got a big project or you got like a big client or something that you remember from those early days that like sort of propelled you forward or gave you maybe the confidence to keep going? Yeah. So there was one client, it was a construction company. And I remember we came in with the expectation or desire just to help them with a pretty basic exchange migration. And we helped them with the project and they said, oh, will you come back next week and do something else? And then we come back next week and do something else. And pretty soon this construction organization had grown quite a bit. They were going to move. And just over time, we became their go-to IT resource. It wasn't that they signed a managed service contract. They just kept calling more. And the great thing was for my business was that the culture of that company was awful. So I would build these relationships with everybody there. People really liked working with me. And then they would leave and go somewhere else and say, they'd go, they wouldn't like the IT person. They'd say, hey, call Peter. They would email, you know, or leave a voice message and say, hey, I'm at a new company. Really want to try to get you work here. We really don't like who we're working with. And that company hemorrhaging their employees ended up being the base, you know, for our client growth for a good two-year period, you know, as we were really ramping up and we had brought on a couple of team members. Yeah, and things like that. So it was one of those things where I realized, oh, individual relationships at the clients, you know, matter almost as much as is the client happy, you know, and uh, so it was, it was a good lesson in, in business development there. I want to dig into uh, the first couple of years a little bit, like 
you get this thing going. At some point, you probably like filed an LLC and figured out how to pay taxes and do all that stuff. What was it like, like those first couple years as you maybe matured to a couple employees? Yeah. So I was fortunate because my business partner had more understanding of how a business is supposed to operate mechanically than I did. He had uh, finished college for one. Actually, probably went to class too, but he t- took care of all that. So I really didn't know for a while. He'd basically say, "Hey, here's the form you have to give. You know, your accountant." I said, "Well, I don't have an accountant." I was like, "Can I just put this into TurboTax?" You know, and we'll just say, "I'm glad the statute of limitations is over um, on those tax years, uh, <laughs> not because of anything intentional, but because I was somehow ignorantly competent enough to decide I could do all of this stuff on my own." And I think it really was that drive of. And it was almost a fear-based drive of I quit school, so I have to make this work. So the early years were a lot of just saying yes to everything. And that feeling of, all right, I don't know what I want to do around this, but I do know that I can talk to people. I do know that I can fix things. And I am not really as skilled as people who have education. And I can find a subset of clients you know, that will want to work with me. And I think it was probably... I still remember the moment. There are a few moments over the years where I can remember where I was sitting when I had the thought, you know, or the conversation. But I had this thought one day where I was just kind of drowning in imposter syndrome. And every time someone would call, I'd just be like, oh, I hope they don't figure out that I'm college dropout. You know, I hope they don't figure out that I'm 22. That's, I looked like I was 15, you know, so, but they would still call and people would call me for a reason. And I remember just the thought one time I said, oh, wait, I don't know. I'm not Microsoft certified. I don't have all of this training. I haven't been in the industry for a long time, but I'm curious. I ask questions and I connect with people. And that makes me better for a a subset of clients than someone who just has a bunch of experience and assumes that they know what's happening. And I'd heard these stories over and over about why these clients would want to work with me and not whoever they were working with you know, prior to that. And so that became the cornerstone, you know, of my confidence, you know, in that, because the first few years were very unconfident years, you know, for me, we didn't have an office. I had a big desk in my bedroom. I have a picture of it. uh, I found the other day and um, the desk was made out of a door, you know, that I just bought at Home Depot. Like Jeff Bezos. Yeah. I mean, it's a door, it was a filing cabinet and it was three monitors and they were massive. They took up the entire desk and I had a 13 inch TV that I had taken from my dorm room and I had that, you know, in the corner and then I had paper everywhere and I had littered just, you know, by an equal number of Coors Light cans and Mountain Dew Code Red cans. And I was basically driving around fixing computers and networks and setting stuff up. Uh, during the day and at night I would be developing websites and programming, you know, and just basically freelancing. And so I would um, go through and I don't know how much I slept. I'd probably, you know, at some point my friends would call and we'd go to the bar and do trivia at like 10 o'clock at night and come back. And um, it was the worst balance, you know, and the worst, the worst efficiency, you know, in terms of work, but it was just grinding it out. And I don't think that's the grind that they talk about when they talk about like, you know, working a lot and making it through those years. It was just like, just trial and error in terms of, of what life was supposed to be like at the same time, you know, the paying bills, running a business and all that. So the first few years, I can't even say that I look back and have, there wasn't much that looked like a business about it, I would say. And like, you know, now you, I've seen you speak, you have a book, right? Like about management, like how did you go from the guy 
who was, you know, working on the table trying to figure things out to like, you know, someone who teaches other people how to manage people effectively and run these massive teams. There are a few things that have propelled me, you know, over time. One is that um, if I'm not doing something that no one else has done or trying to do something that no one else has done, um, it becomes pretty uninteresting pretty quickly. And so I was always trying to find something that other people had failed at or that other people just weren't doing. And so and I found a lot of that in IT was that I would look at it and say, oh, there's a reason why organizations don't want to work with other companies. You know, and there's a reason why the stereotypes around IT exist the way that they do. And so I found a lot of areas where I could look at it and say, no, 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 let's not do it this way. Let's do it this way over here and build something very different. The other piece is that I just love to build. So growth was never a plan. It was just, that's why I'm doing this, you know, is to continue to do more and more. And it's been everything from, I remember the first time that I hired somebody, the responsibility that I felt for that person's, you know, financial well-being and their family. And then realizing, you know, as we had more and more employees, all of the different, you know, opportunities that we were creating, but also needing to be stewards of that, you know, effectively. So being able to scale effectively uh, for people and then ultimately realizing I can explain it a lot better now. I felt pieces of it then, but I didn't necessarily know how to articulate it. But recognizing that IT is a people industry and it's a people industry, no matter if you like people or not, that's the industry we're in is we we're people selling, you know, other people's time to people who have technology needs. So when we get through that simplicity and understand it that way, I love the concept of building with people and creating, you know, it doesn't have to be a physical, you know, thing that I'm building. It doesn't have to be Legos. Like, you know, when I was a kid, it can be this institution and, that's the drive that got me there. The experience and situations that got me the the skill that helped to get there was mostly based on failing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I got a lot of stories about, you know, imposter syndrome, about making bad hires, about poor leadership on my part, poor leadership on other people's parts, about recognizing that empathy, you know, which I've always known is, is a big part of this, is not as simple as just making sure that I care about everybody. I mean, there's so many different aspects to that complexity that don't just come with the idea of, oh, I care about people. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be a good boss. People are going to want to work here. It's going to work out. It's far more complex than that. And there was a lot of devastating you know, components to that for me and my psyche, as I thought, you know, as people would leave, you know, and I didn't realize how they you know, experienced things or, or what their perspective was. So I want to talk a little bit about this term MSP. And it, you know, became popularized while you were growing in the middle of the whole thing. Now you're, you know, a leader in the industry early on, you're, you know, a pioneer in the model and everything. Like, when did you first hear the term? Did you know you were an MSP? At what point did you start identifying as one? Can you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah. At what point did we identify as one? That's a great question because the first time I heard it was probably 05, I think it was at an enable presentation. And, you know, the idea of managed service provider, and I didn't get it. And it actually fed some of my loathing of certain parts, you know, of our, our industry, because the managed service provider, that doesn't say anything about what we do. We do IT. And even looking back, I'm like, it's kind of pretentious to be just like, oh, we're a managed service provider. Well, that means you're an IT company, right? It's like services can mean a lot of things. I didn't adopt the term for a long time. It's funny. You hear it referred to people. In the MSP industry, and you hear it referred to companies, you know, and that's a little bit confusing too. 
So I still even clarify to this day when someone says, what do you do? I don't assume that they know what an MSP is, even if they're industry adjacent. It's like IT services provider, managed IT services, and then I'll use the, the MSP term you know, after that or the, the acronym. But for a long time, I didn't want to be that. I remember going to conferences and I didn't go to conferences for the most part, but when I did, because I either needed to learn something or my partner, I would want to go kind of see what was going on in the industry. I was like, I don't want to be around those people. I have anything in common with them. I don't like them. I don't, you know, these are the people that we take business from and they don't understand business. And I, I don't want to hear for the 13th time that our model of scaling, you know, being a relationship oriented company isn't going to scale. Like, I don't care what they have to say. We're going to, we're going to figure it out. So it probably wasn't until maybe 2015 that I got really comfortable with it. You know, even though we were pretty early to the model idea, you know, we were doing the all you can eat, take the risk, you know, share the risk, flat fee stuff in 05, you know, and really got the momentum, you know, 06, 07, 08. So that part wasn't new to us at all, but the term just never really sat that well with me. So funny. And so do you remember sitting in the rooms, like hearing people give presentations on, you know, switch to this managed, you know, moving from break fix to MSP? You're already doing a lot of that stuff, it sounds like, right? So one of the worst presentations I ever saw, I won't name names because I'm still around, was a presentation at SMB Nation in Vegas. And I remember sitting there and it was an MSP pricing presentation. And it was exactly that, you know, hey, here's how you price MSP services. And it was probably as big of a topic then, you know, as selling security services is now, you know, for MSPs. Like, how do we do people just like, tell us how to do it? Well, one of the things, he put a spreadsheet on the screen and you couldn't read any of it. It was too, it was way too tiny. You know, it was just like all of these lines. And he said, this is the template for how you price MSP services. And he had broken things up into two categories, what you can control and what you can't control. And flat fee services, you could only put in there what you could control. And it was a margin calculator, you know, and you could basically spit out, all right, if you include all these things, antivirus software, you know, an hour a month of reviewing logs, RMM wasn't ubiquitous at the time, you know, so a lot of it was manual, but it was just all, you know, proactive, you know, QBR type stuff. Um, and here, here's your fee, but anything that you, that happens because, you know, of what you do as the customer, that's still billable. And I remember sitting there, we were probably 60% recurring revenue at that point. We had definitely gotten over the hump. Wow. That's a lot at that time. And I just remember thinking and looking around the room and everyone's just furiously scratching notes. So then I was like, I hope you all go do all of that and I will take all of your customers <clears throat> because that's you are building the perfect business that no one will buy from because no one's looking at this saying, how do I keep all the risk, keep all the share, you know, share none of the downside, but make sure that you're well compensated for the things, you know, that you can control and make your life better while mine still is really difficult. And I was so frustrated by it, you know, at the same time, I was like, this is what we're doing. If you fast forward, and now I look back and I see a lot of things in that. Number one, technical people and really talented technical people oftentimes are, are pretty risk averse. Um, so this model, you know, of shared accountability is not natural, you know, to a lot of technical mindsets. I didn't necessarily understand that at the time, but... The other thing that I, I failed to realize at that point was that the supply and demand balance was still so messed up, so so unbalanced. There was 
very little supply of, of skill set, you know, to fix computers and do this stuff. And there was still a huge demand. And so the supply side got to make the rules. Like we got to come up with the really shitty model, you know, for pricing, you know, from the market perspective, because it's kind of a captive market. And as long as we did everything the same or consistently, then the market had to kind of bow to what we were doing. I had no interest in that. And I think that that's, it set me back a little bit because at that point, I kind of tuned the industry out for a long time. I tuned out the thought leadership, but at the same time, it probably gave me what I needed in terms of really thinking creatively from the client perspective, you know, and from the market perspective. And that's essentially what we ended up doing was building Greystone from the perspective of the customer. You know, what does the customer need? Where is that value? Frankly, the way that most other markets had to, because they didn't come into this with all of a sudden, everybody needs this and very few people can supply it. So how did you continue that, you know, customer focus as you started to scale up and get bigger? That's been our, our life's mission at Greystone is, and like I said, I remember being, being five employees and talking about our model, which is very relationship oriented, you know, clients work with it, you know, at that point, it's, you know, just, just one person was 85%, you know, of the, the work. It was like having your IT guy, but kind of the best of both worlds uh, scenario. And to this day, you know, we're north of 20 million, you know, my 120 employees and you still work with a team of two or a team of three. And the infrastructure and intention that we've had to build around that, I mean, honestly, it's taken the balance of those years uh, to do that effectively because what we learned along the way is that clients love working with the same people that they build a relationship with. Better service comes from people that you're building a relationship with. They know more, they, they understand context. Context is the word that we use ad nauseum you know, at Greystone. People get tired of hearing me say it. But it's what's missing in most of your, you know, kind of blind, typical help desk type types uh, situations. When uh, we would go to these conferences and we had five employees and we tell them about our model, they say, "Yeah, that's great, but you can't do that with ten employees." And then we go back, you know, we had ten employees, like, "Yeah, but you can't do that with twenty employees." We go back, like, "Oh, wait, it's for twenty-five employees." Yeah, but once you get to fifty, it's not going to work. Like, at what point, you know, is this going to break? And instead of going back and saying, how do we unwind this? We went and said, how do we sustain this? And ultimately, a lot of the lessons that we learned are that good IT people oftentimes are not good at avoiding burnout. They're accountable and sometimes they're accountable to a fault. Good relationship oriented IT people really care about their customers. And so we would burn people out. Then the clients would be upset that their person was gone. They liked working for us. They thought we were good people, but they couldn't sustain that. And, you know, the IT industry in general is not an easy place to work because kind of the fragmented nature of the work and the, the demanding nature of that. So a lot of what we did, you know, along the way was recognizing that, all right, how do we keep the relationship as the focal point and that, that context and that, you know, the kind of captive experience while taking out all the parts that don't need to be relationship oriented, that don't need to be context oriented and move those somewhere else. And that's ultimately what we've done. We've divided, you know, high level and low level tasks. We've divided, you know, client success, you know, operations, QBRs are run by a non-technical team, you know, that invites the technical resources in, but none of our technical people have to go, you know, call their client and schedule uh, something. We don't have quota carrying account managers. We have client success managers who really, you know, help drive the vision of the customer and take the depth in the relationship that we have and try to, to manage that with the team. So it's very nuanced, but that's ultimately what's driven our success 
is that we haven't let go of it. And we, my partner, Jesse and I decided at one point, they said, we said, the moment we have to let go of this, we're done. Like, that's not why we're in this business. And if we do grow to the size that it just doesn't work anymore, that either we need to stop growing, which is kind of detrimental to how I, you know, see the world and what I want to do, or we need to pass it off to someone who can do something with this that we don't want to watch. And ultimately up to this point, we haven't had to do that, you know, and, and I think we're to the point now where, you know, there's a lot of debate around how to do this effectively. There's, there's no perfect way, but we love the path that we've chosen. Do you remember any scenarios over the years where maybe the spreadsheet says one thing, but the mission and the gut says something else and you have to make that decision? Absolutely. If you look at kind of some of the black and white advice that you get in the industry, it's all right. There's someone says, cut the bottom 20% of your clients every year. Like, well, we were growing to the point of, okay, if I can hire two more people, then my team can have 30% less on call, you know? And so I actually didn't ever buy into that. Uh, I needed scale and size, honestly, a little bit more than I needed, you know, optimum profitability at that point. And so there were plenty of times that the spreadsheet said, yeah, this customer, it's not working. And I would look at it and say, yeah, but if I lose that customer, it sets us back in the scale that we're building. And that sounds really, I mean, I can articulate that that way now. I think it probably came out as, no, we can't lose a customer, that's money, you know? And kind of that fear orientation, like now I, I recognize why we were doing it and, you know, and where that came from. And there were definitely times where we were too slow to act um, and prioritized that, you know, that revenue and keeping the customers, even though they weren't good customers. But the other part of it was that I've always prided myself and then in turn our company on being able to succeed in situations where others can't. And so you'd get that that pain in the ass client and just, you know, the, everyone else is like, yep, let's get rid of them. Like, yep, let's get rid of them. And I, I would be kind of, you know, relentless to the point of belligerent around the fact that, no, 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 we can fix this, you know? And I learned a few times, like, you can't fix, you know, just being a dick, you know? And <laughs> there are ways to manage that. I'm not saying that all of our clients are saints by any means or that I am, you know, all the time, but recognizing the humanity of the situation and really digging into why people act the way they do um, and coming up with really clear criteria for this is what an ideal client is. This is what an acceptable client is. And this is what an unacceptable client is. And we just came up with three criteria, you know, that said, if any of these three are, you know, are true, they can't be a client of ours. And that helped a lot in terms of that clarity, but I still am to that point of look at it and if someone comes in is like, yeah, they're just the worst client. You don't want to work with them. Like, well, why? You know, like, are they the worst client or are you just not serving them right? You know, it was my first question. So a lot of the the mission has been then trying to balance our mission with people and our, you know, our, our employee. Our mission with people covers both the clients and the employees. So when those are at odds, that's when the spreadsheet just doesn't really factor in that much. You know, that's where a lot of the leadership lessons, you know, have been most critical is realizing like, all right, we, we've got to create a balance. There is no perfect scenario here. Wow. I want to get into New Charter a bit. Can you talk about like the more recent years of Greystone, the involvement with New Charter, how that came about, and uh, maybe a little bit about you know what you do today? Definitely. So New Charter uh, Technologies is an investment partnership, um, equity investment, uh, just a fancy way of saying that they bought equity in our company. And... Ultimately, I think most people, if you're listening to this, um, know that M&A is a big deal. And so we got the 400 you know, emails and calls over the course of 18 months and 
you know, we would basically kind of like our, our attitude toward the industry in general or early on, we would just say no. We took a few calls. We kind of shared the mission that we were on, where we were going and said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. We see, yeah, we don't have the profitability. You know, if you're going to value this this way, it's not worth talking about it. Like, oh, yeah, we really like your company, though. We could, we should definitely consider the conversation. And then the few that we went through at the end, they're like, yeah, but your profitability is this or your value is this. <laughs> no, you just wasted our time. We know that. You don't have to tell me my numbers. And so we just got to that point where one day, I think we were about maybe, maybe six or seven million. And we started to look at it and say, all right, we've built the company relatively fast. We've been on the Inc. 5000 you know, list a few times. Like, but the the foundation isn't as solid as we need it to be. And this is where Jesse, my business partner, was a really good kind of high-level perspective to say, yeah, we're missing these pieces. We haven't built for scale in these ways. So if we keep growing, it's going to break. And so we decided that we'd look at, at some opportunities. We had a conversation, you know, a few conversations. They didn't go anywhere. We ended up taking just some, some growth capital uh, from a non-equity growth capital firm that had a, a pretty unique model. It was debt, more or less. Very few, you know, MSPs start with much money and very, and even fewer, you know, go out, out and take on debt in order to grow. It's typically a software, you know, type play, you know, or something, you know, a strategy for companies that have assets. But we found this and, and we did, it was a great partnership for us for a couple of reasons. One is the money helped. Uh, we were able to shore up some things, correct some past mistakes, but it was the first time that we were in the world of, of um, investors who had operational experience and an understanding of what businesses should look like. And we got to, to have conversations at the table uh, with them. And, and um, so over the course of three years, you know, of understanding kind of where, what that looked like, how people looked at things from the outside, I would look at, at the, the MSP landscape and I'd see the M&A, you know, the roll-ups, the platforms, the private equity funded platforms. And I would just watch them destroy these companies that they acquired. And I think like so many people, every time someone in our market got acquired, I get so excited because there's no faster way to get clients than, you know, for the company that people trusted to get acquired and ruined. And so, I, I mean, you, you can go search online. I've been on podcasts over the years. I've wrote some blogs around how detrimental, you know, private equity money is in this space. If you fast forward to, you know, August of 2020, we took a private equity investment and I had to go you know, decide if I was going to do this again, am I going to do a, a, an apology to her or am I going to do a kind of like, was I wrong? Did I sell my soul or did I give up? And ultimately the reality is we found something different. And I recognize it is not private equity in and of itself that is evil. It's a lack of understanding of how our businesses operate in the MSP space that has caused you know a lot of that. So New Charter Technologies is a, an investment portfolio of we call it a federated model. We were fortunate to get in, you know, early you know, to this model and really help to shape what it can be because it's honestly a lot of. I think so. We closed on our twenty-first company in the portfolio on Monday. There are a few things that are fantastic about it. One of them is that out of twenty-one companies, twenty founders are still operating their companies. People have not used it as an exit. Out of twenty-one companies, nineteen of them were not for sale, including us. You know, we were not in that place where we were actively looking for this. But in 2020, we looked at it and said, you know, risk mitigation with the security landscape, with the, you know, our company basically grown to the size that it felt, I didn't think I was rich enough to keep owning the company because if it imploded, 
I couldn't sustain all of that, you know, for everybody personally, my partner and I couldn't. And so we had just continued to invest so much forward. So that's where we started to look at, you know, are there more creative options? We've told our team, like, we're looking for the unicorn option. If it ever comes along, we're going to discuss it. But until then, we're going to keep doing what we do. And the unicorn option to just ended up meaning a financial model that prioritized people, clients and employees, you know, and if I fast forward, our, our team met, met our, our investment group. It was where we did it during COVID. So it was, most of it was remote. We knew people, you know, some people uh, previously, but our team didn't get to interact with anyone. So as they met people for the first time, you know, maybe six or eight months later, they said, wow, you did it. You found the only private equity group that cares more about people than they do about money. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Their job is to care about the money and to get returns on that money. We found the only private equity group I've seen that understands that in this industry, the money follows the people. And so you invest in the people, you invest in that experience, you leave the things alone that are working, you leave the relationships in place, you leave the organizations in their markets with their local leadership, with their brand, and you use your resources and, and our scale to pour gasoline on that fire rather than start it, you know, put it out and start a different fire. And so it's not a rip and, re and replace model. It's a model where companies come in, uh, they're all growing companies, you know, typically 5 million and above in revenue, profitable. You know, we take best in class companies and give them the resources and the leadership and the you know, shared experience to make them better than best in class. And so it's been so much fun because Greystone, you know, has grown significantly since we came into the platform two years ago. It doesn't disrupt our team members the way that other M&A structures do. Our team didn't even know for a couple of months after we did the deal because it didn't impact operations, you know, and, you know, we got to let it settle in and say, all right, yeah, this is exactly what we thought it would be. And now we can figure out how the course of this, you know, will move forward. And it's not that there's no trade-offs. I mean, there's definitely a strong desire to collaborate. And so there's, there's a lot of communication that, that goes back and forth. We do standardize some things. You know, accounting in the, in the HR platforms are kind of a no-brainer. But what we say is that we don't we don't remove the soul of the company, and the soul of the company is the relationships, the service model, and that local presence, you know, leadership and brand. And so, everyone who comes, who joins the investment partnership, you know, is invested in the portfolio. None of us are invested in our own individual entities anymore. We're invested in the shared portfolio. And so, as long as we keep the culture aligned. And as long as we keep things moving forward the way that, you know, and we're on this trajectory, not to integrate our companies overnight, but to find the best way to do things and you know, be on a trajectory that's, that's moving towards the same point, we get the best of all worlds. We're not getting married and then deciding to go on a date for the first time after that. You know, we get time to figure out how to bring things together and we partner with each other voluntarily, not because someone's coming in and saying, well, you need to cut these expenses, you know, so here's how we're going to consolidate these things. And so the results have been, you know, our companies are growing on average, uh, trailing 12 is 21% growth organically. Most the prominent uh, private equity integrated, you know, platforms or roll-ups are kind of mid mid to low single digits at best in terms of organic growth, because their momentum is going into bringing things together. And there's room for that model. I know people who are doing it well, who are doing it right, but it's still very costly at a time when for us, we look at it and see that the momentum, the opportunity we have is momentum in the growth space. How do we do more for our customers? How do we, you know, address the market better? You know, that's just prime time for that in our minds. 
So we typically don't attract the companies that are, you know, that have gone and hired an investment banker and said, I just want to get top dollar. We attract the companies to look at it and say, long-term, they're going to get top dollar, but they still want to shepherd where things are going with what they've built and, you know, do it as part of, of a bigger group. So we're a $200 million portfolio. Um, sometimes, you know, we get the advantages of that. And sometimes we, you know, operate as, you know, 21 individual organizations, but over time it becomes more and more consistent, not more and more integrated, but more and more consistent. And that gives us, you know, room to look at it and say, oh, hey, let's invest in some marketing services together. Let's invest, you know, one of the first things we did is hire a CFO, you know, a really top-notch CFO. None of us could do that on our own. Didn't make any sense. We have, you know, a VP of people that a $5 million company is never going to be able to invest in to help us navigate both cultural things and just, you know, the ever-changing HR uh, perspective. These are things that MSPs don't want to hold on to themselves and they don't consider it the soul of their company. They want help in, in doing these things better. We invest a lot in helping with growth, you know, lead generation, you know, those sorts of things, all while they look at it and say, yeah, our company still is the same company, you know, in the market. So obviously I'm passionate about it because I just, you know, took off with that and rambled and didn't let you get any words in. No, that was great. It's been exciting. So say that uh, you're talking to someone who's maybe at that five, six million revenue mark. They probably have worked way too much the past couple of years, maybe took a few years off their life and maybe some hairs falling out or something. They're having those same feelings like this thing's gotten so big. You know, my monthly salary bill is crazy. It's more than I ever thought it would be. Maybe I need to explore some options. Like what advice would you have for someone in those in their shoes outside of like the general like, you know, here's how your financial should look type advice? Yeah. I was mired in that for so many years and I was scared to do something about it because everything had the trade-offs. I looked at it and I was like, well, if I cash out, I think a lot of us, when we built, started businesses 20 years ago, didn't necessarily think of enterprise value at that point. It was, you know, it's a good opportunity to create a great job and jobs for other people. But when you started to learn about enterprise value, it was like, oh, wow, you know, that's crazy that these things have this value. And then when you get tired, you're like, all right, so how do I go cash in that value? You know, where, where do I cash this check? And when things are going well, you look at it and say, no, 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 let's keep growing. And then you lose a client or you have one of those situations or one of those weeks, you know, where, you know, someone slept in a server room, you know, because you're trying to get the exchange server back up and less of an issue now. But those are the times when I just felt stuck because I had this thing where I cared about the people. I knew that if I left, it wasn't going to have the be, be shepherded the same way. I hadn't built it for that yet. You know, at various times I, I realized it would probably continue without me. We hadn't institutionalized things that we needed to institutionalize to make this this is Greystone as a company, not Peter and Jesse. You know, as business owners, you know, doing what they think you know is best. And so people were still just asking us at every turn, "What do we do? What do we do?" There's a ton of pressure there. The feeling, you know of being stuck pushed me to really think about different options and you know realize that i had to compromise on some things i've learned that hundreds of times because i don't like to compromise you know on the things that i hold true we've reinvented a lot of wheels over the years that didn't need to be reinvented just because i didn't want to do it like everybody else but at the end of the day realizing that if you can really define what matters most and then use that as the north star you use that as you go pursue this we sit in a really advantaged position. People need us. The industry is growing. If you're running a good business, there are no shortcuts. 
And that's the, the advice that I would probably say is that if you're not where you want to be and you don't have the option that you want, you know, in terms of being able to diversify or mitigate risk or take some chips off the table or, you know, invest the way that you want to put in 12 months of hard work. I don't mean hard work, like missing your kids, you know, not seeing your family or any of that, but just like get up early, be focused, figure out where you're going you know, find people to hold you accountable, whether that's a peer group or a partner or, you know, and go on a mission to get your business to the point that it's healthy and that you're really proud of it from a numbers perspective, from a culture perspective. Don't kill your business to prop up your numbers to sell it because it's going to fall apart the moment you do. And your legacy isn't going to be what you want it to be. And I mean, I've seen that happen over and over, but put in the work to create a balanced, healthy business. And in doing that, then you wake up and you realize you, you have a lot of options at that point. If you're already at that point and you don't feel like you have good options, look harder, you know, and new charter is a very u- unique model. Like I said, our biggest challenge is that, you know, we're not going out there to alongside everybody else to say, hey, let us bid for your company because the companies that are best for us are typically the ones that aren't for sale. But recognize that those models do exist out there. And I will say, I always assumed that I would, when I sold my business, I would leave the MSP space and go to an easier industry, like being an MSP vendor, just for you. (laughs) But uh, give me a call. Give me a call. We'll work together on something else. (laughs) But it was that thing where I I looked at it and said, I'll do this. I'll find a soft landing for my people. I'll go sleep for a couple months. You know, I'll start working out. I'll get healthy. And then I'll figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And the reality is, I love my job more than I ever have now. I never wanted to give up control. I never wanted to give up. That control is overrated. Alignment is not overrated. We gave up. My partner and I were 50-50, so we didn't have, neither of us had control. We had to really earn our influence in this. And it's no different, you know, in the space we're in now. And I recognize that I'm a better leader because I have support. I'm held accountable by people who understand things that are better than I am. My money's in a better spot, you know, with an investment that's shepherded by people who understand institutional investment. And frankly, I realize I'm far more risk tolerant than they are, you know. So having my money alongside theirs, and another thing that's nice about the uh, the new charter model and how they understand people is that there's only one class of stock. So when we all reinvest, it's the same level as private. There's no private equity games, you know, that happen in that, and they're very seasoned private equity uh, partners you know, former Golden Gate Capital, but people who look at at what we're doing and say, hey, there's a, an indirect benefit to investing, you know, in people in this. And it's actually people who look at it and say, how do I get the most margin out of this immediately? They end up killing their margin, you know, and killing their growth. And maybe they get the EBITDA that they want, you know, the profit that they want, but we'd rather get that, you know, over time on 10 times the revenue because we were the right landing spot for people who wanted to be here, not people who figured out that they just had to be. And so life absolutely can get better. And I was wrong about the fact that institutional investment, you know, is negative, you know, in all spaces. It's truly the lack of understanding of how the businesses operate, you know, that's created a lot of those painful situations for people. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Definitely. Uh, I think we could go for like another two hours, honestly. We might have to do another episode. Well, I think we have too in the past. It's just not been with an audience. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because there's, I mean, there's so many stories along the way that are hilarious and, you know, 
it's a serious business, but I think we have to also laugh at ourselves or maybe not turn around and realize the the absurdity, you know, of what we've gone through, you know, collectively as an industry and individually as entrepreneurs. And my team sometimes asks me to you know, ask stories about, about our history. It's like, yeah, I can, I can take a ton of story about the guy that I had to fire through the phone at the jail, you know, about the time that we got sued for more than four times our annual revenue for something that we didn't do. There's so many of those things that are, are fun to talk about. And that, that's the thing that I'll, I'll leave with is the fact that it's easy to glorify, you know, the stories, especially when you're in a position of, oh, we're a 20 million, 20 plus million dollar MSP, but we're all in this together. I mean, this is, a, it's an industry that is, no one becomes a $20 million overnight success, you know, and even as a $20 million MSP, I still work almost every day in the things that aren't working the way that they need to be. And that part doesn't change, but the confidence level, the stability, the, the partnerships you know, are things that definitely have evolved over the years. So yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you very much. I hope to see you in person uh, soon, maybe next week after this recording. <laughs> it seems like it's at least maybe every other month, if not every few weeks that we, you know, so that's awesome. I love it.